I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners, because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound Archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Arts Cafe by Amber Rose Johnson, poet, critic, scholar, hailing from her beloved Providence, Rhode Island. Just to be clear, Providence, Rhode Island, but currently a Philadelphian doctoral student in English and Africana Studies here at Penn, whose work explores the intersections between experimental poetics, performance, and critical theory throughout the Black Diaspora, whose editorial projects include the exhibition catalog for Colored People Time at the Institute of Contemporary Art, ICA, here in Philadelphia, and uh, the catalog for Great Force at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Richmond, and whose writing has been featured in Bomb and elsewhere, and who I'm so delighted to say co-teaches with me the open online course called Modpo. And by Yolanda Wisher, the Philadelphia-based poet, singer, educator, and curator, who is author of, among other works, Monk Eats an Afro, who in 2016-17 served as the third poet laureate of Philadelphia, yay, winner of the Leeway Foundation's Transformation Award for her commitment to social change, who performs a mix of poetry and song with her band, The Afro Eaters, and at Philadelphia Contemporary has been curator of Spoken Word and producer of the podcast Love John's A Mixtape. And by Daniel Bergman, a student of literature, art history, and other subjects, who has earned a degree at Harvard University where he gave a commencement address and was featured on CBS Sunday Morning, who has served as a community TA in the open online course on modern and contemporary poetry called Modpo, and who believes, as he has said often, that forming interpretive communities of learners is, to use his phrase, not impossible. The voice you will hear today speaking Dan's words, or some of Dan's words, belongs to the filmmaker Michael Bergman, who is sitting nearby now with a letterboard onto which Dan will spell his thoughts. Amber Rose Johnson, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Are we on a scale one to ten excitement about talking about this work that I haven't even mentioned yet? Ten. Ten, really? Fantastic. (laughs) Yolanda, always good to see you. You too. You're very busy. Yes. So can you say one thing in that busy thing, that set of projects, one thing that you want everybody to know that you're doing right now project. I'm working on this awesome project called Consensus with Trapita Mason. And it is involving surveying Black women poets in Philadelphia, gathering them and memorializing them. Wow. And Trapita, it should be said, as of the moment we're recording this, but not for too much longer, is the current poet laureate and a really great person. Dan Bergman, welcome back to the Writer's House. Do you have any idea how many times you've been here, Dan? No, but every one was important. (laughs) You're so sweet. And it's great to talk about this poem in 
this company. Thanks, Dan. It's great to have you guys back. Well, today we four have gathered here to talk about a poem performance piece by Jane Cortez entitled She Got, He Got. It was performed live at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York on October 23rd, 2010. Backing Cortez on drums is Donardo Coleman. Here for our podcast, we'll be listening to the audio of the performance on a show page at Jacket 2 Magazine, where we post on Poem Talk. We will post a video recording, which is also available on YouTube. So here now is Jane Cortez performing She Got, He Got. She got, she got hot, got happy, got hot, got thrilled, got hot, got degreed, got hot, got silly, got hot, got possessive, got hot, got disappointed, got hot, got hurt, got hot, got nurtured, got hot, got bitter, got hot, got drunk, got hot, got drugged, got hot, got rastered, got hot, got pregnant, got hot, Got rejected, got hot, got indifferent, got hot, got lost, got hot, got born again, got hot again, got political again, got hot again, got academically ambitious again, got hot again, she got hot, 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 hot again, got to be a hot skeleton in the latest hot fashion, got to be a hot feminist turning into a hot cultural investigative gadfly, got hot, got hot, she got hot. She got hot, she got hot, and got like a hot exile flying into alcoholic tantrums on hot buses. Got hot, got hot, got hot, she got hot, she got sad, she got hot, she got crazy, she got hot, she got athletic, she got hot, she got impatient, she got hot, she got used, she got hot, she got hot without sweat, she got hot without heat, she got hot like a hot young volcano. Got hot, got hot, got hot like a hot old bubbling crater. Got hot, she got hot and got to screaming, rescue me. She got hot and got to shouting, open the door, Richard. She got hot, hot, hot. She got hot, hot, hot. She got hot and got bound to a sewing machine. She got hot and got glued to a cash register. She got hot and got tied to a computer. She got hot and got stuck on the global assembly line. She got hot. She got hot. She got aggressive. She got hot. She got bored. She got hot. She got frigid. She got hot. She got harassed. She got hot. She got depressed. She got hot. She got angry. She got hot. She got hot and so much alone and hot and so inwardly focused and hot and numb and hot and raw and hot and so unprepared to be so hot and so limited and hot and so dominated by the thought of being so hot all because a certain person didn't say I will love you forever baby don't be so hot she got hot 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 He got, he got, he got happy before he got cold. He got fed before he got cold. He got excited before he got cold. He got broken hearted and warlike and then he got cold. 
He got cold, got self-righteous, got cold, got distorted, got cold, got authoritative, got cold, got cold and got to go and berserk in the workplace. Got cold and got to pimping in the project. Got cold and got to screaming for revenge. Got cold and got to handing out punishment. Got cold and got to setting up situations that would fail. Got cold, got frustrated, got no recognition. Got cold, got high, got cold, got forgotten. Got cold like a cold mercenary. Got cold like a cold hyper fastidious hotel manager. Got cold like a cold militarized supervisor of clerks. He got cold like a cold political hustler in the street. Got cold like a cold over the hill CIA agent. He got cold, cold, cold. He got cold without ever having imagined that he'd be so cold and wooden and cold and untropical and cold and plastic and cold and mute and cold and ferocious and cold and rigid and cold while watching the sunshine and cold while kissing himself in the mirror and cold and removed and cold and swollen and cold and dependent on being so cold. He got cold. He got cold and got to screaming, it's a man's world. He got cold and got to hip hopping like a peacock. He got cold and got to hollering, I'm a macho man, I'm a macho man. He got cold and got glued to a subway booth. Got cold and got tied to a department of sanitation. Got cold and got pinned to a patrol car. Got cold and got taped to a bar stool. Got cold and got engaged to a pawn shop. Got cold and got married to a racetrack. Got critically cold. Got artistically cold. Got miscellaneously cold. Got cold and so outwardly focused and cold and mean and cold and greedy and cold and selfish and cold and so concerned about appearing to be so cold. All because somebody, somebody stole his lollipop and no one could chip through the ice to say, I love you forever, baby, don't be so cold. He got cold, cold, cold. He got cold. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. I want to start by asking about the word hot. This is an amazing performance because it creates so much variability, like all great poems or all great performances. So I just want all of us to think about the variable Mm, synonyms for hot. What are some things that hot is here? Amber Rose first. Hot. What's it mean? Motivated. Motivated. Yolanda? Sexy. Sexy. I mean, clearly. Dan, what's the synonym for hot here? Dan says dangerous. Dangerous. Mm. Amber Rose, comment on dangerous. Does that work for you? Mm, I like dangerous, yeah. I like dangerous because even within dangerous, there's that same kind of, you can flip a coin for its meaning or the kind of its connotation. So dangerous could be alluring in kind of like a sexy way. Mm-hmm. Um, dangerous could be untouchable, uh, but dangerous could also be a kind of negative categorizing. Um, so depending on the context, I feel like within that one word is a slew of meanings. Mm-hmm. Yolanda, is there a relationship between, you said, I think the word was sexy, sexy and angry, which is also sometimes a connotation for hot, like hot under the collar? Oh, yeah. Yeah, to get hot. 
I also thought about hot, like of the moment, like being hot in the charts or, mm. um, and it's, but it's trendy, all trendy, peaking. yeah, but it's momentary. It's, it's very time-based and signals something that's not very lasting. It's just a momentary state. Let's turn to cold and do the same thing. It's very different. It's supposedly an opposite, but it's very different. And I guess I'm f- weirdly moving to already to an idea that I'm putting out there that even though the poem is perfectly symmetric, we've got lots from the for the pronoun uh, she, she, and then halfway through we turn to he, he is associated with cold, she with hot, so it sounds like it's symmetric, but I don't think hot and cold necessarily are symmetrical or antonymic, so maybe that's where we should go next. Dan, what is, what's a synonym for cold, the way it's working in this poem? I want to go with the absence of heat. The absence of heat. Okay, that works, too, as an antonym for hot. Amber Rose, another one? Cold, I I was appreciating what Yolanda said about hot being time-based because cold seems like something that solidifies, um, a hardening that lasts, um, a state that one remains in once you get to that place. Mm. But hardening is the synonym I want to offer. Hardening emotionally, intellectually, et cetera. Mm -hmm, Physically. Mm Mm-hmm. Yolanda, cold? Mm. I guess that word that she used earlier, frigid, uh, emotionless, uh, distant. Mute is another really good one. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Can you find that context for that anywhere? Uh, Cold and wooden, cold and untropical, cold and plastic, cold and mute, cold and ferocious, cold and rigid. Mm. I think untropical is really funny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah that's perfect yeah except it gets complicated people so um, maybe all three of you can respond to this one starting with Yolanda got cold and got pinned to a patrol car so that would suggest that police brutality is or we're assuming that in the context here um, has something to do with this person being cold as in unfeeling or not expressing love or wow, what do we do with that? You know, I started thinking about the relationship between hot and cold and sometimes you're hot, sometimes you're cold. It's kind of the roll of the dice. Bad luck. Yeah. So cold being kind of just a bad turn of fate here, you know, your loss in that, that moment. Wow. Dan, what are your thoughts? It might not have happened if someone had told him, baby, I'll (laughs) love you forever. Mm. Don't be so cold. I also feel the two parts are not equal so much more about her. Mm. Maybe because by now we're all just tired of 
hearing about men. Ambrose, Dan just said two things. I'd love for you to pick one and respond. The first thing he said referred to, you know, if there had been love expressed, if the thing that wasn't said got said, maybe he wouldn't be finding himself cold on his luck and pinned against a police car. Um, and the second thing is, Dan agrees with me that it's asymmetrical and that this this is really about she or her. Pick either. Yeah, I'm going to jump on the first comment. Um Maybe he wouldn't be cold if someone had said, I will love you forever. Because that's a line that we haven't talked about when we've talked about this poem before. And I was thinking about the role of care and what the poem might be trying to suggest that care can do when it's present and what it can feel like when care is absent. Um, which is that care and 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 unconditional love maybe makes possible the opportunity for us to step outside of binaries and to actually see and apprehend and hear and experience one another outside of just hot and cold. That care is something that kind of works the in-between. But without that care, we end up in these kind of binaries where we're not really paying attention. It's just hot and cold. That's really amazing. Yolanda, I would love to hear your response to this. I mean, Ambrose Johnson is basically saying, um, not only is it not binaristic and, and, and not symmetrical, but it's not about being hot or cold. It's about some a relationship that depends on finding some place between hot and cold. That sounds yeah. so loving and moderate and so cool. And Buddhist a little bit too, like just be neutral. Like it's not being, not hot nor cold. Mm -hmm. And that those moments of if somebody had or if only are moments that disrupt that the kind of cruel balance of fate right you know it, i think mm -hmm. they're different too the one with the she is mm -hmm. if only somebody had said i will love you forever baby the other one the the he is if only somebody had installed his lollipop or something like that and i kind of saw them as both moments of trauma that disrupt life um, or set you on a different course, mm. you know, and introduce mm. that if only mm. or if. Um, Dan, we seem to be in a mode where you put out an idea and, and we respond. I love this. So let's <laughs> do it again. Um, Dan, what are your other thoughts here? I think it's important, says Dan, that the two sections follow each other and they don't alternate. But I think when we look back on it, we tend to think about it as if the two histories were interwoven. Cortez has done a wonderful job of presenting them separately with his cold history contextualized by our hot one. But our narrative drive is so strong that we put them together, at least I do. Does either of you do that too? Mm-hmm. Mm. So you're reading from a statement that Dan wrote before coming here today. That's right. Can you read the first two sentences again from that passage? Dan says, I think it's important that the two sections follow each other and they don't alternate. But I think when we look back on it, we tend to think about it as if the two histories were interwoven. That's great listening, mm -hmm. Dan Bergman. That's great listening. Ambrose, a response to that other than to say, yeah, that's got to be right. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm thinking about what is afforded or what is revealed if we don't do that alternating. So if we don't take it as, well, in this section, I can, com I can compare this section to this other section on kind of a one for one line by line. 
So what's afforded if we don't do that? Because I think partially the binary does make it, does lead me to read it comparatively. Um, But if I try to resist that, maybe I get a more caring reading, actually, of these two figures or the two gender binaries and how they're sort of constructed. And maybe it's that they're not, um, the point of the poem is not to say women are this and men are this, or folks who use she are this and folks who use he are this, but rather is like, maybe more interested in the fact that no matter what a person is doing, they end up being viewed the same way. Mm. And that's true across Mm. a binary split. So that's like the meta above the meta. (laughs) This is meta meta because not only is it non-binaristic for the reasons Dan has suggested, but also more basically I suggested earlier, it would seem to be a 50-50 thing. We let the woman you know, have her say about hot, feeling hot, we said the man, and then, you know, it's performed by a woman with her son, Donaro Coleman, on drums, that's complicated, we'll get there, but in fact, the title, Yolanda, is She Got, He Got, and one of the things they have in common is being got. Hmm. They share this, that's non-binaristic, right? right? So I guess I'm asking you, Yolanda, Yolanda, and then Dan, to turn to this problem of got. Because it's one thing to be cold. It's another thing to get cold. It's one thing to be drunk. It's another thing to be said that you have got drunk, got drug, got rastered, got pregnant. You got pregnant. So do something with got. Or even to get got. Yeah. Right? Which can mean to be like murdered, to be killed, to be... Um, tricked i think in that way when i think about to get got and how much work a word like got can do it says it says something about possession and a sense of a a yearning for possession that here is not possible or is in some way contested right that these are folks the she and the he are dispossessed of something they're their bodies. I think that 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 word somebody comes up a lot too. But yeah, I I get a sense of not being in full possession of oneself or at least being possessed by other circumstances. So if we've been gotten in so many ways, after a while all we are is a being that's been gotten. It's mm. been gotten mm-hmm. in non-definitive or non-consistent ways. We're all over the place, and we're each all over the mm-hmm. place. Um, Dan, what are your thoughts about God? Dan says, I love Amber Rose's uh, interpretation. Looking at it that way, I suddenly see that God can also mean understood, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that she understood all these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, did he also like I got it? Him? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, the poem is much more compassionate, says Dan, than, for instance, There It Is, mm-hmm. or some mm-hmm. of her other angrier mm-hmm. poems, and that goes with Amber Rose's reading, too. Amber Rose, let's turn to pr- the performance, So, because we've been talking about it as if it's you know words, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with what we've done. It's pretty amazing, actually, this caring reading that's emerging that we haven't really done before. Mm-hmm. But now add the performance to all this. 
how does it change our view or enhance what we've been saying? And we can add the drum, I mean, the, 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 the percussion to this, if you like. It's clearly a performance we could hear from the applause at the end. I think it might have been her encore, actually, at this particular performance or her last piece in the set. So they were applauding the whole presence of this extraordinary person. So what do you think about the performance? Yeah, I mean, the performance is brilliant and it's such a joy to listen to. Um, I There's so much that Jane Cortez does with her voice. Uh, there's so much sarcasm and so much play uh, that's revealed. Um, something that I'm thinking about with the drums, actually, I was listening this time especially to the sort of the the discordance. So she's not always kind of right on the beat. The drums at various are doing different things at various points, but at some points the drums are on like a really steady beat and she's like just missing that beat, just behind it or just ahead of it. Um, and it, it keeps you from just allowing it to be a groove that you can kind of snap to. There's always something that you're like, oh, oh the, the rhythm's about to sort of switch up. And so even though, yeah, she doesn't allow it to be a sort of passive listening. You got to sort of stay active. I want to say one last thing, which is that, and maybe someone else will be interested in this. I was thinking with the sort of disruption with the rhythm about the disruption of causality that's happening in the writing. Um, it's not th because of the repetition of got the cause like this happened because of this it no longer really quite holds true. And so I see that happening in the rhythm and I, in the same way that is happening in the language. Mm. Yolanda, I'm going to try out an overreading, and, and, and you tell me if it's too much. Um, <laughs> we have an Amber Rose's point about the um, uh, non-synchronicity of perhaps at times of the voice and drum. Mm -hmm. um, we have a drum that's not quite always in sync with what the speaker is saying. What the speaker is saying is that there's this, this he out there that's cold <laughs> and she is hot and she's the performer and we have a drummer who happens to be her son. So it's, is it overreading to say that uh, this is relevant, that there is a tension, percussive tension, and that that is what's being enacted in the poem and that that is completely part of the meaning of the thing as a performance and as a poem. Mm. Overreading? Mm. Maybe a, a tad. <laughs> I would say it's, it, I wouldn't necessarily bind it to the meaning of the poem, the performance and the meaning. I think that there's, there's something about the fact that the she is a she who's also speaking. And that the drummer is does not have the voice. In fact, she's hot. She's hot on the the mic is hot, right? She's hot on the Another mic. Another hot. Right? right. But I also think there's some really there's a tension between what what Amber Rose was describing, the the rhythmic tension. There's it felt also like a almost a generational tension yeah. in terms of the the kind of music. The the like the beat that he was playing felt to me like he's playing a hip hop beat. Yes. That's very much eighties hip hop, you know, and somebody could rhyme over that, but the the way that Rakim would rhyme over that beat would be totally different. And Jane Cortez is not rhyming, right? She's not doing that. But there's there's almost in some sense that the first half of that poem feels very much like hip hop. And I was sitting here and I was like, I'm getting the head nod. 
something shifts though with the the he. I feel, and I'd want to listen to it again and again to hear what that shift is because it felt like we we left hip hop and we went into a, a different yeah. kind of music. Yeah. by the end. So you're you're going with my reading enough to suggest generational difference yeah. musically and otherwise, and of course, since this is mother and son, mm-hmm. there's a there's an automatic generational difference. Whether there's a tension or not is none of our business ultimately. But you perform you perform in front of a band, and there are relate people related to you in the band. So there is something personal about this, right? This is a particularly amazing document. This video, you yeah. want to add to that? Yeah, because there's listening going on. I think that's that. It's the listening that happens anyway in a band. But I think, you know, especially because my partner is in the band and he plays the bass, I'm I'm hearing the notes that he's playing probably a little louder than than most, and maybe he's also hearing my singing voice. There's another conversation going on there's between a conversation. us. Conversation. That's a word that music right, musicians right. use. And there's the music conversation, but there's also an unspoken conversation of spirit, soul, energy that's going on too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's and you see that in the video. That's what I was really taken by was that moment at the end when she looks back at him, and they give each other the look, and she's like, you know, good job, you did. <laughs> that was good. You <laughs> does, did. Does you did he? It right. I mean, your partner go cold in the performance, and what's the look then? Oh no, he's always hot in the performance. <laughs> it, it's always a place of heat, honestly. I think Denaro Coleman here, and more overreading. Then I want to turn to Dan. More overreading, but I just can't help but think of it. Um, how could he be cold when he is the son of the performer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the son of a free jazz legend. Yeah. yeah. And it's really hot, and he is sweating. So that too, he's hot. He's, he's not cold. He's putting work in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I no, like you it. see the labor of the performance. That's something I noted too. Is it, right from the beginning, you see that this is the end of the set, right? He's already put in a good maybe thirty minutes behind. Yeah, and there's a way in which he's he's hotter than her in that respect. You yeah. know, just physically, she looks much yeah. more tame and calm at yeah. that moment at yeah. the end of the. The session. Yeah. Dan, one of the great pleasures of having you here is that for most people, if they want to say something, uh, it's in their head and I have to intuit. But for you, I know when you want to say something in advance. So you've got a lot on your mind. Um, Michael, what are some of the things that Daniel was saying? Well, Dan says that he thinks the music is really important in terms of the way she serves up this difficult material. And he uh, created a, a very short uh, text-to-speech file for you about that. Okay, yeah, we'd if, love to hear that. okay to play it. Oh, yes, it is. Let's see what happens. First of all, she uses rhythm to contain her rage. Mm. And she uses music to give her audience permission to enjoy her rage. Mm. To feel empowered by her rage. To feel empowered within her rage. To feel happy because of her rage. To feel safe within her rage. To feel relieved by virtue of her rage. <laughs> oh, man. Damn. You're killing wow. us. Okay. Oh, um, I want to invite Amber Rose and Yolanda to respond to Dan's intervention there about rage. Just to uplift the rage in Jane Cortez's poetry and yeah. not to demonize it. To yeah. To, you know, to make it something that's strange and shouldn't be there, but 
is a thing of beauty and purpose. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just, I really love that reading that, and also to invite other people into the joy of your rage, right? that that edge of joy that rage can have. Yeah. I think that's powerful. That's amazing. Amber Rose, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I really love, I love that. And I love Dan's use of the word rage because... Rage is so often read as like uncontrollable, outlandish, totally, you know, and and I think Jane Cortez is expressing rage. And I hadn't even read yeah. rage into this. But as soon as it was said, it's like, yeah, I mean, rage over the conditions, right? Rage over this binary even existing. Mm-hmm. Why else would mm-hmm. <laughs> she be writing this poem? Why else would she have her son right. sweating on these drums if not to express <laughs> this rage? Mm. But the idea that the rhythm is a container that the that the rhythm makes it possible to engage with makes it possible to find mm. pleasure in mm. makes it possible to experience this rage as something that's informative that's enjoyable that's pleasurable that's like r- really really rich and mm. and complicated and mm-hmm. um something that makes other things possible is yeah, stellar reading. We, yeah, Floor. we are talking about art or form, art form, music form, but form that contains, but not contains in the sense of delimits or prevents. Contains meaning makes possible. Yeah, yeah? becomes that's a vehicle what Dan's for, reading there. Yeah, right. So rage is not um, beyond form, breaking out of form. This is a formal piece. Mm-hmm. Dan, I want to ask you a, a somewhat personal question i'm sure there's you've said something really important and maybe michael will convey that to us but it's a somewhat personal question when we talked about this piece for a poem talk you volunteered instantly to mm-hmm. come to this maybe because any you would love your love to be on poem talk period and uh the last time you were here we did a poem talk on larry eigner and eigner had severe limitations he could only use uh, one, I think, one finger of one hand to type, um, and here you are talking about rage in containment and rage in art. I mean, you have described your own emergence from the darkness of not being able to communicate, starting with your parents showing you the great, some of the great art, sculpture, and so and painting, and so forth. I would love to hear your thoughts on your personal relationship to this idea of rage being contained and expressing itself. Well, first of all, I can't speak usefully, but I live in sound. And I loved listening to this performance. Also, it's oddly comforting. Please forgive me for saying this that people who can talk get into trouble too. 
Oh, you're, you're great, Dan. Uh, I'd like to invite Amber Rose and Yolanda to respond to what Dan just said, if you want to. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, I'm, I love, I live in sound. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about just that, that sense of living in or being consumed within a world of sound, um, and what sound makes possible outside of the page. Like if we were to just read this poem, I would have, I think I would have a totally different experience, um, than if I had the drums, if I had, Jane Cortez's specific voice and her specific um, intonations and and tricks that she does. Um, so I, I'm yeah. In response, I'm just thinking about what a gift it is to live in the sound of this of this poem. A gift, yeah, totally. Yolanda, yeah, living in sound for me reminded me of um, the Intezake poem. Um, I live in music, and you know something about like here on C sharp Street. Just that ability to translate, the, the ability Jane Cortez has to translate sound and repetition into meaning, I mm. think is incredibly powerful. Mm. Yeah. Dan? Dan says, I would love to hear the two of you perform it. You'd perform it completely differently, but it would be amazing. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> I think we better schedule that. We better put that on the <laughs> right. put that on the calendar. Yeah. Well, we we all could spend more time talking about this piece, but what I'd like to do, somewhat arbitrarily, is ask each of you for a final thought. Something that you came here today wanting to say but haven't had a chance to yet. So everybody's looking down. So uh, Ambrose. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, you're so game. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I actually have a profound final thought. Um, but I guess I'm just, I'm still meditating on care <laughs> and how care, how caring to listening to one another, living in the world of each other's sound, lis listening to one another and carefully attending, um, outside of trying to quickly categorize or like box in someone's behavior, someone's demeanor, someone's reaction um, to say, well, it's this or it's that. Uh, if we let go of the this or that, um, how can we like, how can we be more caring in how we view one another um, and engage with one another? And then in return, what, what does that make possible for how we move through the world? If I'm not preoccupied, um, I think there's a section in both where, yeah, she is so worried about being, uh, being, being thought of, so dominated by the thought of being hot. And he is so aware of, of the, of appearing to be cold, right? So some of this is about how we're seen by others. And mm -hmm. so if we get rid of those binaries from the outside, what does it make possible for how we can walk through the world differently within our own selves? Um, so care is the name of the game. Care outside of binaries. That's my final thought. Love that. Thanks for restating that because I think it's perfect at the end to restate that. It's a complicated idea here. Yolanda, final thought? Yeah, I, as I reread the poem, I kept thinking about um, how it seems to move through time 
perhaps in the life of a person or a body. Um, and the last thing I thought of when I thought about the word hot, which she got hot in thinking about the relationship between mother and son at that point in their lives, I was thinking about menopause. <laughs> and I was thinking, and that for me made it think, you made me think about the she moving through time in the same way that um, in Donna Smith's um, alternate ways of looking at a black boy, the boy moves from being, you know, younger to older. Um, and I wondered if there was a way to read this poem that way, um, along with that idea of this kind of conversation between generations. Beautiful. Thank you. Dan Bergman, final thought? My uh, final thought is a question for Amber Rose and a question for Yolanda. May I ask? Please. They bracket the range of possible interpretations of the poem. The question for Amber Rose is, how did you get to this wonderful, caring reading in the context mm. of your work on English as a language of colonization? Mm. Dan with the Dan, fire the questions! This is like Dan! This is, this like is an, the Dan this, show. This is, right, my, hey. this is dissertation defense. Answer this the question. This is the Dan show. Okay, should we hear Yolanda's did question? Dan, did Dan put okay. his finger on the issue? Okay. Dan, Yo, um, Yolanda's question is totally wait, different. Wait, so you're not going to let her hear answer my question. first? No, should no, we hear it? She asked to go on to it. Oh, uh, come Ooh. on. We want to hear this. Care. Mm. Dan. Oh, That's what I'm trying to figure out, Dan. I, okay, well. Um, okay, so my thinking about care um, really especially comes from Christina Sharp, as much of my thinking about things does. Um, but Christina, who writes about ordinary notes of care, um, and I'm thinking especially about her text, uh, In the Wake on Blackness and Being, um, but she uses a line from another scholar, Sidea Hartman, who's come to the Arts Cafe before, um, who says, care is the antidote to violence. And Christina meditates a lot on what ordinary acts of care can, can, can do. Not necessarily the most extravagant thing, but just care as listening, care as paying attention when someone is changing, when something is happening in someone's world to just pay attention. And she, she helps me think about care as something that brings forth radical possibilities. Um, and because of it has me trying to read for small acts of care in, in, in ordinary context. Great question. Great Yeah, thanks answer. for the question. Okay, what's what's the question for Yolanda? Can't wait. You spoke about your partner on the bass in the band, and I want to ask you in the language of your infinitely soft and sensual sonnet uh, with the cooking lexicon, what do you feel Cortez is cooking up, and is his coldness a dessert like a gelato or something infinitely sadder? Ooh. He's done his homework. Did research. <laughs> wow. Oh. oh. Yeah, this is a different kind of cooking, this poem. This mm. Jane Cortez poem is a little bit of a different kind of cooking. But there is a sense of what Amber Rose was talking about is the sense of care in the poem that you're referencing, Sonnet with Cooking Lexicon. 
It's the story of how I met my partner, kind of told through the language of food. And it does generate its own kind of heat in terms of just the mix of our two families, you know, intersecting. Um, and there is an inter. I feel like that's where heat happens, is and, and it happens in this Jane Cortez poem too, an intersection of sorts. So maybe not so much that these these she and the he are uh, following each other, but maybe they're crossing in some way. Great question, great answer, Michael. What's what's Dan saying? He's just trying to get ahead to the gathering paradise. Oh, right? okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, my my final thought is to refer to a ver a little known essay by Sigmund Freud, in which Freud typically tells you about an idea that's not his. Um, it's an earlier idea, but it's the antithetical sense of primal words. And th this is not true of all languages, but it is true of a lot of basic words. Um, and hot and cold are among them. So hot refers to heat. Heat is actually also the absence of heat, right? So it depends on how cold it is outside and how hot and cold you are. And I think this poem does a wonderful job of making us think, again, against the expected binarism of the way women behave in a relationship with the way men behave. The antithetical sense of primal words means that there's a lot of cold in hot like, she's so hot that she's cold in the sense of forbidding, right? And he's so cold that he's hot sometimes. In fact, she's very attracted to the coldness after a while, the speaker is. And so, like, there are many lines that say this, but I'll just quote one. And cold while watching the sunshine, right? That is a classic instance of the antithetical sense of the primal word cold because it's pretty hard even in the in a january a really chilly january sun which is down on the horizon and you look at it and you derive some heat and also life right and the juices flow a little bit well we like to end poem talk with gathering paradise and you'd think after all these years i would know the gathering paradise part of the script but it's when I we get spread <laughs> wide our hands and <laughs> to <laughs> gather a little something poetically good, to hail or commend go. someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world or the music world. And I am going to throw you people a curveball. Not only are you going to do a Gathering Paradise recommendation of a book or a project or a poem or an artwork, but I'm going to ask you as a second round to recommend a person. Somebody that people should know about. Somebody either who's very eminent or gone or somebody who's emerging. So we have two things to do. Amber Rose Johnson, you're first. So you're going to tell us about a regular gathering paradise and a person. Okay. So I'm going to start with a person first. Okay. Um, but the person for sure is Bell Hooks on my mind. Bell Hooks, who if the record should show, passed away yesterday, maybe, or the day before? The day before. So for the record, we're, we're, we are recording this in December 2021. Yeah, Bell Hooks, who... Um, mm, um, who has taught me, especially, a lot about love and a lot about care and a lot about 
binaries and their dangers. Um, and a lot about how to be hot mm. um, and how to wield cold. Is that your person? That's my that's my person, my book, everything okay. she's read. Okay, okay, all about love especially, okay, but that's good. my person. So you did a work and a person. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, Yolanda Wisher, uh I know I swiped that from Yolanda. <laughs> no, that's that's you a can good you one. can you can second that and say I'm, bell hooks. I'm, I'm going to second it anyway and still throw another person up in here. But um, I guess my person would be V. Shane Frederick, is a collaborator of mine. He's a composer, singer, and he's about to drop a single tomorrow, I think, Saturday, a new single from his upcoming album, which is an exploration of the work of Nat King Cole. And he does all these great covers of Nat King Cole songs that you've never heard before. So he's the person that I'm, I've been thinking about. And the project would be something I'm going to start working on over the winter break, uh, doing some research on Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. And I'm doing a project with Ruth Naomi Floyd and Diane Monroe, the violinist, and we're creating a piece about the life of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper called The Francis Suite. And it's going to debut in May of next year with Intercultural Journeys. So that's something I'm working on, looking forward to shaping. And where did Harper live? Lived in Philadelphia, spent some, uh, some time yeah, in Philadelphia, Philadelphia right? Yeah. Um, and some other places, but definitely had home here in Philadelphia yeah. and did a lot of abolitionist work here. Yes. Fantastic. Great. Dan Bergman, uh, Gather Some Paradise. I have recently discovered a book by my grandfather, Martin Bergman, called The Unconscious in Shakespeare's Plays, mm. which I thoroughly recommend. Wait, Dan's grandfather was a Shakespearean? <laughs> Uh, among other things. <laughs> this makes so What else sense. was he? Ma- yeah. This there is Michael go. speaking now. He, what else was he? He was a uh, teacher of psychoanalysts, major teacher of psychoanalysts in New York. Wow. I'm glad I mentioned Freud. So, so that, so is that, that was the person. What about? No, the, that was the book, I think. That was, was the, that book? the, okay. the book. Okay. Dan, who's the person? The book. The person is my friend Elizabeth Bonker, who is becoming a major advocate for people with non-speaking autism who spell to make their place in the world. Fantastic. Great recommendation. Okay, so My Gathering Paradise. The texts, the non-person recommendation, I was challenged two poem talks ago by one of our poem talkers. Why don't we ever talk about novels? Well, we don't. I mean, I just, I, I said at the time, snarkily, how would we do how would we talk about a novel in a poem talk? The thing, the whole thing is geared another way. And the person said, um, take a passage. Okay, so maybe we'll do that. But what I thought I would compensate a little bit by giving novels their due. I want to recommend three super long novels that 
are also kind of Gnostic and blew me away and are just incredibly non-rational works. And I just, these are my favorite three long books. One is, of course, Samuel R. Delaney's Dahlgren, maybe the best novel I ever read, ever. It's, I don't know, a thousand pages or something like that. It's just a crazy, violent, oh my gosh, dystopian thing. Dahlgren, D-H-A-L-G-R-E-N. You should buy a copy. Uh, my second is John Barth's Giles Goat Boy. Forget trying to explain what that book is, but it's coming a, of age of this Harry Potter meets dystopian fiction. And the third is Paul Auster's 4321, which is a relatively new book, also about 1,200 pages. And that one, in that one, um, Auster writes four possible autobiographies, four possible stories of his coming of age. Um, so these three novels are all very experimental narratively. And one of the four, three, two, one, one of the lives that Auster narrates is more or less his, a prehistory to his writing. Another one, I don't want to spoil it too much, kind of stops suddenly. The person dies. Sorry, I just blew that. Uh, and it's really fascinating. And all three of them go through the radical 60s and wow. So I recommend that. Dahlgren, Giles Goatboy, and 4321. And the person that I'd recommend is in the room, and that's Dan Bergman. I want to shout out to Dan. Uh, as you can see, having listened or watched this uh, re totally remarkable person who uh, has a degree from Harvard and is now in the process, I don't mind, you know, talk about cutting to the chase, don't mind saying, is thinking, what's next? What is the next thing? And I don't want to say what I think the next thing could be or should be. I just want to say that it could be absolutely anything. Anybody, any fans of Poem Talk out there? who have ideas, having listened to Dan's brilliance, and Dan is sort of spelling away, he's got something to say, uh, contact me. I, I want to take recommendations because I feel I'm an informal advisor of Dan Bergman. What should Dan Bergman do? So what do you think should happen? And I'm so excited about that future, Dan, and so you are my person. Dan, does Dan want to say something in response to that? Dan says, I learned all this from keeping the right company, so I hope I can stay in touch with these two poets. Oh, man, that's just fabulous. Thanks, Thank you, Dan. Well, that is all the hip-hopping like a peacock we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House of the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Amber Rose Johnson. Dan Bergman and Yolanda Wisher, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner, who's been handling the video, and Andrew DePass, who's been handling the audio. Thank you both. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. A shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, Kevin Platt, Elliot De Silva, and Matt Vyankelevich. Join me to talk about two poems by Eugene Ostashevsky. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>